I am Noelle Yates. I'm president of World Help, and I come to you all the way from Virginia. So it is great to be here. I have my 19-year-old son, Riley, here with me. He is a college student home for the summer. He's studying music in Nashville, so any excuse I can to get him to tag along and spend a little more time with me is great for this mama, so I'm glad he could be here this morning. But I wanted to start by sharing with you something that I saw on the news. I think it was probably a couple years back. Maybe some of you saw this same story. But it caught my attention because it was a story about a group of sailors who basically got lost at sea and literally ended up on a deserted island. And when they got to this island, in order to get rescued, they took the leaves and branches off of the trees and they spelled out the word help on the beach of this island. And a pilot who was flying nearby saw that word help and that's how they were rescued. And I, I don't know what it was about this story that, uh, that caught my attention. I think it was maybe just because it felt like an episode from Gilligan's Island, more like more than real life, right? Because I thought with all of our progress and all of our technology, are people still spelling out the word help with, with branches on a beach? And then it, it really got me thinking. It got me thinking about the work we do at World Help, about the work we were doing together here with your church. And I thought, you know, Sometimes we, we're all just like that pilot in the plane, right? We're, we're comfortable and we're safe and we're already rescued ourselves. So we're kind of flying around in our own private plane, so to speak, and, and all the hurriedness and, and busyness and distractions of our life will simply fly from destination to destination. And if we're not careful, we'll miss the signs, We'll just keep flying around and we'll miss those signs and we'll, we'll forget the reason that we were rescued in the first place. We'll forget that we're supposed to be on a rescue mission every day of our lives. We'll forget that we're rescued so that we can rescue. But as people of faith, I believe that's what our lives should be all about. That's what I believe world help is really about. You saw in that video, we say we provide help for today and hope for tomorrow. And what we mean by that is this. You see, we believe without food and clean water and medicine that our bodies need, well, then faith, it can mean very little. But without faith that really feeds our soul, then everything else is just a short-term fix. But when you focus on both, body and soul, something incredible happens and lives are transformed. And we've seen that work around the world. Since World Health began 27 years ago, we've seen 82 million lives impacted around the world with that help and hope through things like Bible distribution and church planting and child sponsorship and clean water wells, help for refugees, freeing victims of trafficking and village transformation. And it's such an honor to be here with you guys this morning for a couple of reasons. One, Danielle and I go way back, so to be here at her church is just very special for me. But secondly, it's special because I consider you part of the World Health family. You've already heard what you guys are doing in Guatemala. I know the team just literally got back yesterday. And I know you saw a couple pictures, but I wanted to show you a couple more that I have as well of your group there. And the work that they were able to do already in this village is just incredible. They were able to dedicate that, the new space at the school after repairing roof and bathrooms and painting and so much more. And I know you're not even done. You've just begin, began that work in the village. And I wish I could tell you 
what that means to the people in that village. These are people living in extreme poverty who never thought the help that your church has brought would even be a possibility. So thank you for what you're doing and and thank you for the lives that you're changing there. I think some of you, depending on your age, can maybe relate to the next thing I want to share with you. And if you're like me, as you start to get older, one of the things that changes is your eyesight, right? So I found myself over the past few years needing lots of readers, those reader glasses. They were everywhere, in my car, at work, by my bed, in every drawer of my home. I had readers everywhere, and I thought I just needed help reading. But I noticed my eyesight was was continuing to get worse, so I thought I better go to the doctor. So I went to the eye doctor thinking he was just going to give me a prescription, and instead he told me I had glaucoma. Now, I already felt old that I couldn't read, but then when somebody tells you you have glaucoma, you really feel old. So he told me I was going to need this minor surgery in about a a year. He said it wouldn't be any big deal. It would relieve the pressure in my eyes. But but then he said, you know, if you were going to be going to Africa or something, I would be worried. But as long as you're hanging around here, you should be just fine. And I said, well, we might have a little problem then. So long story short, he sped it up. I got the surgery quicker than, than he had planned. And everything was fine for the next, I think, couple years. I would go in for appointments, and they just monitored my glaucoma. But no one seemed to really care about my vision. And in the meantime, my vision was not getting any better. So I finally broke down again, went back to the doctor just to get a prescription. And I thought, you know what? I'm done with glasses. I'm going to get contacts. Don't want any more glasses. So I went in. And when the doctor fitted me for those contacts and put them in my eyes for the first time, I was like a kid in a candy store. I could not believe what everything looked like. I thought I just couldn't read. I didn't realize I couldn't see. (laughs) And the whole room looked completely different. Everything was clear and crisp. And I, I could see everything. I was so excited until I turned and there was a mirror. And every fine line and wrinkle that I had not seen in years was crystal clear. But beside that, everything was great. And I I started thinking that my eyesight before glasses was almost like I was looking at a blurry photo. It was like I had a, a filter or something over my eyes. And it got me thinking about that. It, it got me thinking of how often we live our lives filtered. And, you know, if you're on social media a lot like me, you know all the different filters that we can choose for our photos, right? We can make them look as flawless and as, as perfect as we want. But I started to think, what about reality? And what if we chose to live our lives unfiltered? What if we chose to see the world as it really is, the darkness, the dirt, the, the ugliness, all that it really is? And, you know, at that eye appointment I had before I left, the, the doctor told me something interesting. He said, you know, even with these contacts, he said, you still are going to need some good light to read. And he said, light changes everything. And I haven't been able to forget that. And today I want to focus on a verse that has really changed my life the past couple years. 
I um, was so excited when I heard the worship band, and they've already shared this verse with you this morning and sang a song about it. We, they didn't know what I was speaking about this morning, so I think that's such a God thing that we're on the same page like that. But the verse I, wanted to, I want to share with you, you've heard it before, probably like me, some of you your whole life. But in the past couple years, I started looking at it with fresh eyes. And it's in John 1, 5, and it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there's three things this verse is teaching me. And the first one is this, to remember who we are. We need to remember who we are, that we are called to shine the light. And the darkness isn't as dark when the light is shining through. You see, sometimes I think we forget who we are. We forget what we were created for. It's almost like we lose our why, so to speak. We're no longer about rescuing and saving people. We just kind of get lost taking care of our own. And there's a a leadership expert I like. You may know him. His name is Simon Sinek. And he talks a lot about the why and, and how we should always start with the why. And he says this. He says, very few people or companies can clearly articulate why they do what they do. And by why, I mean your purpose, your cause or belief. Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? And why should anyone care? And then he goes on to say, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. All organizations start with why, but only the great ones keep their why clear year after year. So as people of faith and as Christ followers, what is our why? See, I believe we are lifesavers, second chance givers, hope restorers, rescuers. That's, that's our why. That, that's what we do. That's what we are called to do. We've been rescued by Christ, and he is calling us to join him on that rescue mission. And when we all come together as a community of rescuers, we can shine that light into some of the darkest places on earth. We've been rescued so that we can rescue. That is our why. And I learned this lesson at a pretty, pretty early age when I was growing up. Um, my dad worked at a Christian university taking students on trips, and I started tagging along with him when I was 11 years old. And when I was a teenager on one of those trips, we were in the country of Brazil, and we were in Rio where the Olympics were, and we were in a place called the Boat Docks. And this is a place where People came to and from work by ferries, so about every 45 minutes, all of these people were dumped into this area called the boat docks. And we had a group of college students with us that would sing Christian music in Portuguese, and they would set up their equipment, and they would blare the music and draw a big crowd, and then my dad would give a gospel presentation, and hundreds of people would come to faith. Well, my sister and I, we were the youngest ones in the group, so our job was to kind of mingle through the crowd and pass out Christian literature. And while we were doing this one day, we stumbled across this little boy. He was about five years old. He was only wearing a pair of torn underwear. He didn't have any shoes, no shirt. And we found out pretty quickly that he was a street child. He was one of the hundreds and thousands of street children in Brazil at that time. His father had abandoned him. His mother was too poor to take care of him. And he was literally just living on the streets on his own. 
and we fell in love with him. And we immediately went to my dad and asked my dad for some money to go buy him some food and clothes. And my dad was busy taking care of the group, but he sent us off with uh, one of our missionary friends who was with us that day. And we went down to the nearest shopping mall and uh, we found a McDonald's because McDonald's are everywhere. And we bought him a happy meal and he ate like he had never eaten before. And then we went out and we let him uh, pick out some clothes. Now this was the eighties, which in the picture, my hair should to tell you that right away, but <laughs> this was the eighties. So he picked out a bright yellow jogging suit and brand new white Nike tennis shoes. And I remember he was so dirty that I didn't want to slip those new shoes on his feet. So I set him up on the counter. And as I was washing his little feet, I realized his feet almost looked deformed because he had walked the streets his whole life without any shoes. And when I slipped those shoes on his feet, he stuck his foot out and over and over again in Portuguese, he said, shoes, shoes, shoes. He was so excited to have his first pair of shoes. Well, we spent the whole day with them, but we never really thought, what were we going to do at the end of the day? And when we got back to the group, it started to get dark and our, where we were set up was blocking traffic and the police wanted us out of the way and, and all the chaos before we knew it, our whole group is on the bus headed back to the hotel and there's little Nildo on the side of the road, just waving goodbye. Well, by this time, everybody had met Neil. Everybody had fallen in love with him. The whole bus is crying. And my sister and I are up in the front talking to my dad saying, we, we can't leave this little boy here. What can we do to help him? And my dad made a few phone calls and found out that there was a Christian children's home nearby. And they were willing to take Neil in. And the costs would only be about $400 a year. So my dad gathered the group together and he took the hat off his head and literally started passing it around to take a collection. But these were college students. You know, they, this was the end of the trip. Nobody had that much money to begin with. And at the end of the trip, maybe enough for some souvenirs and snacks. So we were not really hopeful. But while the hat was being passed around, there was a Brazilian pastor with us. He was a nice man, well-meaning. And when he saw what we were doing, he leaned over and he said, why are you going to all this trouble to help this one little boy. He said, do you know how many street children there are in the country of Brazil? There's no way you can help them all. And you know, I was pretty young in that moment, so I don't know that those words really sunk in at that time, but I have thought a lot about them over the years since. Because he was right. I couldn't help all the street children in Brazil. That's not what God was calling me to do in that moment. In that moment, he had put one little boy in my path, and I could make a difference for him. And when that hat was done being passed around, there was over $800, enough to pay for Nilda to go to that home for two years. And that day, we went back to, the, we went back to the, where we found him the day before and to give him the good news, and we went right to where he was, and we couldn't find him. And we, we searched and searched, and when we finally found him, his clothes were gone, his shoes were gone, and the older street children had been so jealous of the attention he received that they beat him up and took everything. So we knew it was going to take so much more than clothes and new shoes to make a lasting difference in his life. And that day when the bus pulled out, Nilda was on it with us. Well, you fast forward to the next year when my dad returned to Brazil, my family couldn't join him. So we said, Dad, make sure you see Nildo. Give him this soccer ball. We bought him a Bible that we signed, and we had a, like a, a family photo that we wanted to send him. And so my dad kept his promise, delivered all the gifts. And a few months later, it was the holidays at Christmas, and we're home together, and our phone rings. And we pick up the phone, 
And it was Nildo on the other line. And he says, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And that's all he could say in English. And then he got off the phone. And the missionary friend from Brazil was there. And she got on the phone and she said, you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. She said, I'm in Rio for the holidays. And I was at the church where we partner. And she said, when they saw I was there, they asked me to come up and give a word of greeting. And she said, so I'm up on the platform greeting the congregation. And she said, I hear all this commotion up in the balcony. And she said, I look up just in time to see this little boy jumping from the balcony onto the main stage and charging towards me. She said, I bend down and it's Nildo. And she said, as he's charging towards me, in one hand is the Bible your family gave him. And in the other hand is the photo of your family. She said, he didn't know I was going to be there that day. He must take it with him everywhere he goes. Nildo grew up to be a fine young man. He became a Christ follower. He ended up working in a children's home, helping kids just like him. He even came to the States for a visit with our children's choir at World Help as one of the chaperones. And when I saw that grown-up face of Nildo, I couldn't help but still still see the face of that five-year-old little boy that I had met so many years ago. And I wondered what his life would have been like had we not met that day. But as I've gotten older, I've started to wonder something else. I've wondered what my life would have been like had we not met that day. And that maybe I'm the lucky one. You see, Nildo taught me not to be overwhelmed by the great needs of the world. Nildo taught me to see the one. And you know, simply handing Nildo a Bible that day that we met him would have meant very little to him. But showing him God's love in action, that changed his life. I met Blanca in the hills of Guatemala near where your team was this past week. It was a remote location after hours of driving and then a hike up to her house. I found Blanca in a little mud hut with her parents and her two siblings. This was a family living in extreme poverty. They had no clean water. The only uh, money they, made, they had is what the father could make selling firewood. Um, and Blanca was on the verge of death. She was suffering from malnutrition, the effects of dirty water. She was in critical condition. She was skin and bones. But that day that I met Blanca changed my life because I was able to literally be part of her rescue and, and get her the help that she so desperately needed. And when I saw her months later, I couldn't believe what I was seeing because she didn't even look like the same child. She was happy and smiling and so full of life, just like any other little girl. But she had something she didn't have before. She now had hope. You see Blanca there sitting on her mother's lap. And what, I've to- what I'm told is when we, as part of our baby rescue program, when these babies come in with their families and the mothers stay there while the children are recuperating, 80% of these mothers come to faith. And, you know, I, I think about Blanca's mother and so many other mothers like her around the world who watching their child die from malnutrition and the effects of dirty water, that is never a choice that they would willingly make. But while they don't have a choice, I do. I can choose to ignore it. I can choose to ignore all the suffering happening around me each and every day. Or I can choose to live my life awake. Awake enough to make a difference. 
You see, we are called to rescue, and the rescuers bring the light. And light changes everything. The second thing I'm learning from this verse, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, is this. You see, the light can't shine in the darkness unless it's in the darkness. The light can't shine in the light. It has to be in the darkness in order to shine. So that means we have to be willing to go into the darkness in order for the light to shine. And God began to teach me this lesson on the streets of Thailand. I've been there several times now. I just returned a few weeks ago with a group. And in Thailand, I've met girls whose stories are just heartbreaking. And I don't have time to tell you all their stories. I don't have time to explain to you the the history of, of why what is happening there is happening. But I will tell you this, that the girls there... Culturally, it is the responsibility of the daughters in in Thailand to financially provide for their families. So these are girls from extreme poverty who feel all this pressure to provide for their families. And it all started back during the Vietnam War when soldiers would come to Thailand for their R&R. And you fast forward to now, and now you have a booming industry where I'm told 9.4 million men come to Thailand every year for one thing. And the red light districts are overwhelming. It's wall-to-wall people. There is uh, music blaring. And everywhere you turn, girls are being sold. And it was on those streets in a bar that I met a girl named Om. And as I began to talk to Om, I was surprised to hear that she was just a few years younger than me, that we both had sons close to the same age. And for a split second, I thought, wow, we, we have so much in common. And then it hit me that I have options and and resources and how to provide for my son and we both love our sons she has little to no options at all at how to provide for him poverty has has robbed her of any choice pin was just 11 years old when she was sold from her rural village in thailand to an elderly couple in the city and at 11 years old, you can imagine how tiny she was. And the, the couple got frustrated because she couldn't lift them in and out of bed with, with her tiny frame. And so frustrated, they sold her again, and she ended up in a bar. And what she must have experienced during that time, I can't even imagine. But you wouldn't know it the day that I met her. Because now she lives in one of our safe homes. She's received an education and counseling. And most importantly, she's heard the love of Jesus. You see, what I have learned in Thailand with these girls is, yes, they need to be rescued. And yes, they need to be taken off the streets. But what transforms their life the most is learning that there is a man who loves them, who will never hurt them, who has a much better plan for their life. The gospel message is what transforms their life. Penn has now graduated from high school and hopes to one day become an engineer. You see, if we aren't leaving room in our lives to see the darkness, then how can we even help those who need us the most? You have to be in the darkness in order for the light to shine. And the third thing I'm learning, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, is that no matter how big the darkness is in our world, it will never overcome the light. 
Overcome, the word in Greek, it means to seize, to take possession of, to overtake. So no matter how dark the trials are in our world, the light will always be victorious in the end. I was in Rwanda in a village called Bugarama. It was probably one of the most remote places I have ever been. This is a place that has the highest concentration of HIV AIDS in all of Rwanda. Uh, People there are living in extreme poverty. And if that's not bad enough, it's also a place where there's just swarms of children everywhere. Because this is a place where the families are so desperate that the parents will go off just hoping to find work and they never come back. So everywhere I went, there were children everywhere. And we're there working in this community with a pastor. A church has been built there. And we were there on this special day to help distribute copies of the Bible. And I wish I could describe to you the excitement in this place over getting a copy of their very own Word of God. You know, I think sometimes, even as believers here, we forget how There are still so many people around the world desperate for the word of God and how special the word of God is. And there was so much excitement there that day. And after I left the church and I was walking around the village, seeing some of the work that is being done, out of the corner of my eye, I caught this young girl um, who had just received a Bible sitting on the bench next to what was probably one of her good friends with the Bible open and reading line by line to her friend with just such pride to be reading the greatest story ever written. And I spent most of the day in that village, and it was hot, and it was dirty, and by the end of the day, if I'm honest, I just wanted to go home. I wanted to go back to the hotel. I needed a shower. I I needed some food and some water, and I was just done. And so we finally got back to our vehicle. I had just sat down in the car. I got out my sanitized wipes. I had wiped down every inch of my body that I could. And just about that time, there was a knock on my window. And it was one of our team members. And they said, Noel, um, the pastor in this community, this church, he would like you to come and say a prayer over him and his family before you leave. And I wish I could tell you that I was super spiritual in that moment and happy to jump out of the vehicle, but I wasn't. And I got out begrudgingly and started walking to the very modest home of this pastor. And it hit me. This pastor who has nothing, who is shepherding a flock that has the highest concentration of HIV AIDS, extreme poverty, parents abandoning their children, what he must deal with on a daily basis, I can't even imagine. And yet he wanted me to pray for him. And I was humbled and convicted, and I walked into his very modest home, and I prayed over him and his family, and they presented me this gift. And it was in a bag. I couldn't tell what it was. And culturally, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to open it. I just knew it was heavy. So I waited till I got back to the van. And when I opened it, it was a jerry can, the, you know, which you typically see people in Africa carrying water in. And I thought, did they give me a jug of water? That would be interesting. And I thought, well, no, maybe it's cooking oil. That would have been something like valuable to them. To my surprise, when I opened it, it was honey. And the picture doesn't do it justice. It was the largest jug of honey I have ever seen. And I realized that this man, this family, had given me the very best that they could offer. And I thought, what if we all would be willing to give up our honey, so to speak, 
in that same way. You see, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that extreme poverty and hardship, in one of the most remote places, God's light was still shining through because nothing will overcome the light. I told you that my son is here with me this morning, but I have a younger son as well, and he's, he's my baseball son. I am a baseball mom, and uh, we are in baseball tournaments all the time. In fact, that's why he couldn't be here with me. I went to a Royals game last night, and he is not happy that he, he missed that. I'd like to think I brought you guys some good luck from Virginia, but uh, was at the game last night, so I enjoyed that, that game because I, I love baseball, and I've grown to love baseball. But a few years ago, when he was a little bit younger— We were at a baseball tournament playing a team that we had never played before. We didn't know much about them. They didn't know much about us. And my son was the leadoff hitter at the time. And he was a little bit smaller, and he was by far the fastest kid on the team. And he could round those bases so fast that if you blinked, you'd miss it. So his job was just to get on base. So first pitch of the game, he's up to bat. Pitcher throws first pitch, ball. Second pitch, ball. Third pitch, strike. Fourth pitch, foul ball, strike two. And then the fifth pitch came, and something magical happened. And my son, Bentley, he made contact with that ball and hit it, and he took off to first base. He didn't even care where the ball was going. He was just going to get on first base. And right as he approached first base, he looked up just in time to see that ball soaring over the fence. And he realized he had hit a home run. But not just any home run, his very first home run. So let's just say that fast-paced run turned into a slow stride as he enjoyed every minute of that moment that every little boy dreams of. Well, here's the interesting thing. The other team, they didn't know that was his first home run. For all they knew, he hit a home run every time he got up to bat. So for the rest of the game, every time Bentley got up to bat, the coaches started scrambling and they're yelling at their players in the field saying, back up, back up. And here's what that means for you this morning. I know that you guys are already a missions-minded church. I know that you're doing so much here in your own community and around the world but I believe God's calling you for more. My prayer is that this church would be recognized as so much more than just another nice church that does missions, but a compassionate, relentless family of believers who serve with the hands, feet, and heart of Jesus here and all around the world. Because you know what? If if Jesus were here with us today, where do you think he would be? Would he be here in this room with us this morning? I I think so. I think he would be so pleased with how well you guys are loving people. But if I had to bet, I bet we'd find him someplace else. See, I think we'd find him in Branson comforting those survivors who have lost so much. I think we'd find him in the refugee camps all around the world in Syria and Iraq, meeting their needs until they can once again go home. I think we'd find him in the red light districts of Thailand, looking those young girls in the eyes, telling them how much he loves them, calling them by name, daughter, set free, redeemed. 
and I think we'd find him in a village called La Cedra in Guatemala with a hammer and nails and a paintbrush. Jesus will be found in the darkness. And if we want to join him in that kingdom work, we have to join him in the darkness. So my prayer for you is this, that when the world sees you coming, when they see Journey Church, they would say, back up, back up. Journey Church is up to bat. Something big is about to happen. People are gonna be loved well. Lives are going to be changed. Villages are gonna be transformed. Don't wait for the darkness to come to you. Let's charge the darkness together with his light. Amen. Would you put your hands together for Noel Yates?